Congratulations on making it to another Friday. This is Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS, and this is the podcast edition of New Mexico in Focus for Friday, June 19th. It has definitely been a difficult week uh, for lots of folks across our city of Albuquerque and across the state of New Mexico. We've got, as usual, just a ton of things to talk about. There was the week started with what started as a peaceful protest in Old Town, Albuquerque, that focused really on a statue of Don Juan Oñate, the uh, Spanish conquistador who uh, came to New Mexico um, and uh, made quite the reputation for himself. He's a very controversial figure, especially uh, for the Native American communities in our state and his treatment of Native Americans. He was notoriously known for cutting off the right foot of young males who uh, tried to leave. This is back um, during the Pueblo uprising period and his treatment not only of Native American um, men but uh, even his own uh, people eventually ended up with him being banished from the state. There are statues of Oñate all over New Mexico. Those are starting to come down. There is one in the La Ornada statue uh, in front of the Albuquerque Museum, and protesters uh, took it upon themselves to try to pull that statue down on Monday. And in the course of all of that, uh, one of the protesters was shot by an armed man who was there in attendance. We're still not sure if he's part of the New Mexico Civil Guard or other militia groups who have been at Black Lives Matter protests here uh, in the city uh, recently. But uh, there's been a lot of questions about the city and police response uh, during that protest. We wanted to get to Tim Keller this week, the mayor of Albuquerque. We will have that for you this week uh, in terms of the response and uh, what the city is going to do moving forward with protests and militia groups. Challenging situation for sure. We appreciate the mayor taking the time to talk to us. This week also marked the start of the 2020 special legislative session where lawmakers have the enviable task of having to fill just what's becoming a massive budget hole. Expectations are just shy of $2 billion for the fiscal year coming up starting on July 1st. And the special session kicked off on noon on Thursday, although there were committee hearings on Wednesday. We've been trying to stream as many of those as was possible through our Facebook page. So if you missed any of that, uh, those committee meetings, go back and see if you can catch those there as well as the floor in the Senate and the House, those discussions as well. Also, even before that started, the New Mexico Supreme Court held a hearing this week to decide if lawmakers were in the right to close the roundhouse to the public during the special session. Uh, The court, as far as I know, still hasn't issued their written response, but they did deny um, that uh, petition. So the legislative session, special session, kicked off without the public there in person. Lawmakers are trying to find ways to bring people in via social media, Twitter, and other ways, as well as through virtual technology, webinar technology like Zoom. Um, bit of a mixed bag already so far, especially Wednesday morning when it kicked off with the committee hearings, internet problems. Uh, the lawmakers did stop doing any business until those issues were fixed, but there was one particular committee meeting that had about three or four stops and starts. Uh, it seems to have been better since, but we know that's never 100% guaranteed, which is why the petition was filed, but the court said that it could go on without the public there in person. That New Mexico Supreme Court hearing, the arguments as well as the decision, also available on our Facebook and YouTube pages. We partnered with the court system here to help live stream that out to the public as well so they can stay informed on all of that. So just a really busy week. Um, We'll have more in the show as well, but we want to kick things off with the line. This week, we're joined by Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group PR, Sophie Martin, an attorney here in town and a line regular. Also, Crystal Ciarza from Ciarza Digital. Uh, Great panel to have with us this week. And what you're going to hear now is them discussing the protests at the Ornata statue in Old Town, as well as the shooting and the violence that happened at the tail end of that. We're going to then hear from Mayor Keller on the city's response. Uh, Gwyneth Dolan, our correspondent, 
did a really great job in this interview. Tough questions, hard to find answers. We appreciate again the mayor and taking the time to answer hard questions. And then we'll come back to the line to get their reaction to what the mayor had to say, including questions about why the uh, Onyate statue was still up, even though there had been new round of complaints filed um, before the protest even happened. So right now, let's turn it over to host Gene Grant and the line. It's hard to know what to do with everything that's happened in the streets of Albuquerque, Santa Fe, and beyond. This week began with a prayerful, peaceful protest of a statue of conquistador Juan de Oñate near, near Albuquerque's Tigüey Park. The New Mexico Civil Guard, a self-anointed group of gun rights supporters, took up positions with guns near the statue. That did not calm anyone. Before the sun went down, an angry failed city council candidate had shot a demonstrator. We're going to work through it with a line opinion panel. Joining us is a guest from Sierra's Social Digital, Crystal Sierra. Thanks for being here this week. And two of our regulars return, Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group PR and attorney Sophie Martin. Thanks to you both for being here. And Sophie, I'd like to start with you. Mm-hmm. Do you think any of, this hap- any of this happens without the presence of that group of guys with guns? Would it have gone to that crazy place if those guys had not been there, in your opinion? I think it's I think it's possible that protesters, given what's happened around the country, the the um, images we've seen of statues being pulled down, not just around the country, actually around the world. Um, I think it's possible that the protesters would have gone after the statue regardless. Mm. But what came as a result of that or what came in that context um, with the the scuffling, the shouting and then ultimately the shooting very much feels to me um, a direct result of the presence of armed militia members. Um, and then of course, Mr. Baca also armed. So uh, one of the things I've really been reflecting on in the last couple of days is that uh, it feels to me, um, and this won't be shocking to anyone, but it's we're seeing it in our community, right? There's a real desire amongst community members to go out and have their voices heard, express their first amendment freedoms. Um, and that this group is is there as much as anything to suppress that. But that's that's my sense of it. They create an environment in which families say, I'm not sure I feel safe bringing my children. I'm not sure I feel safe attending. And that suppression of speech is something that I think that our community needs to be really concerned about. Mm-hmm. Crystal, before we get into the APD response and all that I wanna to get to for sure, I'm curious if you felt if you feel like the protesters could have done something a little bit differently. Let's take the militia guys out of it for a quick second. Pulling down the statue, of course, would not be an unusual situation in the country right now. But was there something on the protest side that gave you a little pause? You know, I think uh, this this actually is a, a great question be, uh, for me specifically because. Um, mm-hmm. One of the people that I look up to in the business community, um, two people, is actually Charles Ashley from Cultivating Coders mm-hmm. and Mike Silva with Ruboy Cookies and Albuquerque Trolley Company. And uh, his response is a, a great response to your question, which was they asked him, why did you decide to do a silent protest? Why was it only invitation only from the Black community to others to show their support for, for Black lives? And they chose to do this way for a reason, chose to do a silent protest, chose to do a silent march where my son and I were on central with them um, in solidarity. And and the reason why they chose that way is because they didn't want to create any sense of violence. They didn't want to attract any type of militia members, any type of rebellion. And it goes back to the thought of you choose how you decide to protest. So yes, protesters could organize a different way, but it's just like organizing a wedding or organizing a birthday party. Everybody's gonna have their own different style of, of gathering people and bringing community together. Um, it's just a way of, of whether or not it works or doesn't work. Gotcha. So. Tom, let's get right to APD. I want everyone to get a, a bite at this. APD said it had undercover detectives at the protest, which is very interesting. But we never saw them intervene, did we? In the now infamous footage where the alleged shooter threw that young woman to the ground and other points where APD could have intervened. What was your sense overall how APD responded? 
Well, overall, you know, I think it's uh, it's it's easy to be in this armchair quarterback and say, oh, they should have done this, they should have done that. Um, the fact that there were, you know, under you know, plainclothes officers, uh, you know, present uh, really shows that the, you know, they were looking at a de-escalated. They the last thing they wanted to do was escalate the situation and risk something that we've seen take place in some other cities. And but I guess, my, with, I guess my question might be: by them standing back, did they in fact escalate the situation by doing that? Well, uh, there's an armed presence of that of officers that were standing back, but my understanding was they had plainclothes officers um, in in the crowd. You know, obviously, you know, if I think the scenario changes when you have guns uh, from you know the New Mexico Civil Guard, and then you add guns from the Albuquerque Police Department, um, you know, that changes the dimension tremendously. So, you know, while I, I am not always a fan of APD, I think that APD did the best they could given the situation, but with that said, I think that their actions or lack thereof will be coming under scrutiny, uh, you know, quite heavily for the weeks to come. Sophie, it might be argued that APD is now 0 for 2 when it comes to uh, big problems on the streets, meaning, that, you know, they've got two in a row situations where they've stayed back a little bit. And by doing that, the, the things, things escalated there. The mayor alluded to this in his press conference, that did the chief. What was your sense of how the APD handled it and the takeaway in that presser? Uh, the next day? You know, it, it, it's a very complicated dynamic. When, uh, when there is a protest, it is an organism that operates under its own uh, momentum and its own rules. And I, I appreciate at least what appears to be the sentiment that, um, that APD not show up in force, arms locked, you know, the whole thing creating a sort of a militarized environment from the get-go, that there be at least an opportunity for this peaceful protesting. Um, but, uh, you know, to, to Tom's point, of course, there's going to be quarterbacking afterwards. Was it called Monday morning quarterbacking afterwards? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that to the extent that Mayor Keller and the um, chief of police have built some goodwill within the community, um, or with parts of the community, that will certainly help them. But, but the way that these protests have played out, there are also members of the community, sections of the community, who have lost what trust you know, they may have already had, who are really, I think, evaluating, again, um, their relationship with APD. That's a good point. Hey guys, we had already planned to speak with Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller this week about his proposal to create a community safety department to respond to some 911 calls. Then on the day he publicly presented that plan, everything went sideways. Correspondent Gwyneth Dolan has a wide-ranging interview with the mayor, which we'll show you now. We'll be back with this group right afterwards. Mayor Tim Keller, thank you so much for being with us today. Good to be with you. Monday night in Old Town, as the protest against the Onyate statue became more tense. Uniformed, identifiable city police stayed away from the scene. In effect, leaving a void that allowed these armed militia members to step in. These are people you now say may be designated as a hate group. Why was this allowed to happen? You know, how our city has dealt with protests and, and situations when these groups show up it has evolved and we're looking at this, we're trying to improve it after each event. These folks have been at a lot of the protests, a lot of the BLM protests. And basically after the Trump protests, I think that was maybe four years ago, our city took a de-escalation approach to protests, which basically means they will engage as soon as there is a uh, violent act uh, and they'll engage right away. And that was as a response to over-policing and police being part of the sort of escalation problem. And now we come to what happened last week and we actually have the opposite challenge, right? Where we all wish folks were there sooner. Uh, but the challenge is oftentimes when they arrive sooner, it actually just makes things worse. So again, this is a challenge that we're seeing all across the country. The cities that have uh, police in the middle of protests, there's often much, much more violence. So it's something we're looking at, but I do want to remind folks, I think, look, as a person and just what I believe, like I wanted those folks out of there. They, uh, we tell everyone never to show up with weapons at a protest, but the state controls that law. 
The city is not allowed in any way to take weapons from people at protests. And that's a terrible thing and it's got to change. We've been advocating for this for years and until that state law changes, unfortunately, it is their constitutional right to be there. Well, let me go back just a little bit because in an interview with Gene Grant uh, two weeks ago, you and the CIO said you expected more incidents with these armed groups. What did you do to prepare? Well, we tried to have uh, officers close by. And again, this is, you know, some of the, these tactical things are really APD uh, type questions, but I can certainly speak to them as best that I can. So to prepare, I think two things happened. One, this was for all intents and purposes, I think our department was expecting a peaceful vigil and that's what it was. And it quickly escalated and they were trying to adjust as fast as they could. And so they you know, were able to get the additional teams there. They were able to get an EMT there minutes before the shooting. Uh, the challenge is, you know, we all wish it would have happened sooner, but uh, these protests are messy and these situations evolve. And I also know it's, it's a very rough science. And I do know we were trying obviously to do the right thing, but there's plenty of room for improvement. You know, the man who was shot, Scott Williams, was lying on the ground for several minutes. There was absolute chaos. We, we've all seen the videos. It, it seemed like a shockingly long time before officers arrived and then it was riot police. Is there no in-between here? Uh, it's either nothing or riot police come in? So, I mean, the scene was, was horrifying. It was terrible for all of us to watch. Uh, and, you know, what the department has said is there was between uh, three minutes uh, between when, when people, they were able to, to come in and help. And that can be a lifetime. And actually, if it had gone even probably a couple minutes more, uh, it probably would have cost a life because of the EMT that was part of the team. Uh, so what our city does, we've looked at alternatives and we will continue to look at ways to have, you know, presence there. The challenge, again, let's remember all around the country. The challenge has been when there's like one officer there, two officers there, um, it usually escalates the situation. And we did see, we tried that a couple of weeks ago and we had uh, a sergeant's car uh, damaged and almost tipped over. So, you know, unfortunately, again, like I want a better answer and we'll look for a better answer, but there is not an easier answer. Historically, when there's been a few officers there watching, they've become targets or they have instigated others and there's been uh, violence. So APD said they had some undercover officers there to observe, but even as the clash got more and more tense and things spun out of control, they didn't step in, identify themselves, uh, you know, try to do something. Why is that? You know, it's my understanding that they were at the exact opposite end of the scene. So what happened was kind of at the intersection of mountain by the statue. It's my understanding our folks were way back in Teagway Park observing. And so uh, the specifics on that, I mean, you have to ask like physically what they were doing, but uh, I know they were not uh, close by is what I was told. Um, you know, the lack of police presence there um, and, and allowing these militia members to have the space to feel like they needed to step in. This week, the Chief Geyer said, APD opposes this vigilante action. Um, you've said the same thing. Have police on the street um, been too tolerant of these groups? I mean, we've heard these reports of them being referred to um, as armed friendlies. Have police been too tolerant of these militia groups? Well, we, I want to remind folks, like, unfortunately, on, in New Mexico, right, you can't push those groups out. Uh, they, unfortunately, are protected by two constitutional rights, the freedom of speech and the freedom to bear arms. And we want the power to change that. So I think the challenge is uh, we can, we have two options. We have de-escalation, which has been our policy. And I understand now that's, that's been really challenged and we have to look at that. The other thing we're looking at is if we actually, you know, try and put um, officers between the two groups because uh, they both have the constitutional right to be there. That typically in other cities has led to much more violence. And so this is, uh, it's just a very difficult challenge. And again, we're trying to de-escalate things. And unfortunately uh, for those folks, uh, I mean, you tell me and our department what we can do legally and we are interested in learning and doing that. I mean, you know, we've seen at events in the country where 
uh, protesters are put into these First Amendment uh, free speech zones, you know, behind these uh, chain link cages. Uh, why, why can't you have a Second Amendment uh, zone where everyone who wants to bring a gun gets behind this cage and, and that's their, their space? I think it's something that we're looking at. And we actually asked our department to consider that kind of approach. Again, that has been the other approach. That is also the approach that led to lots of violence in other cities because people all of a sudden tear down those cages and start shooting at each other. So, um, I mean, that is literally happening all around the country. So we just have to be careful and do the best that we can. If your proposed Department of Community Safety had been in place, fully funded, up and running, everything you wanted, would anything have happened differently on Monday night? You know, that department is really meant to reduce the over-policing and uh, trauma that communities of color have seen in their neighborhoods. And also free up officers to just do basic police work and not try and have to solve every problem that uh, people call in 911 for. So I think in some ways, these are very different concepts. Uh, but I like to believe that, to your point, there is a way to have unarmed folks uh, available to try and keep the peace at protests. But as you pointed out, when people are there with AR-15s, I mean, an, an unarmed civilian who works for the city isn't really going to be able to make a difference. So I think these are, you know, both mostly different ideas, but that community policing or community safety department I think does send a strong signal. Again, we've been trying to de-escalate violence in our city, and we've been trying to, to, to untraumatize interactions with the police. And so there is a common thread here. Uh, until yesterday, our community had been speaking loud and clear for years that police were too intrusive, doing too much, uh, and over-policing our community. And so uh, that's what that department is really designed to do. And it's also designed to reflect the fact that for decades, we have laid at the feet of officers every challenge facing our community. And even through the DOJ process, we just say, do more, do more, get behavioral health training, get homeless training. And we're also understanding that that's not effective. We need to have the right response at the right time. And that means a trained professional, whether it's a social worker or a psychologist. So one of the things you mentioned you want to do is ask the state legislature to change a state law um, that prevents you from uh, dealing with some of these militia members and their guns is what you're asking for is the ability to take away guns from people who show up to a protest just because they have a gun? Well, we want to be able to regulate firearms at protests in the same way we would regulate firearms at schools or at community centers. And they're not allowed right now. And that's what we'd like to do. Uh, and I think, I think it's a very reasonable thing. And I think that's the only way where we can actually try and prevent these things from happening like as the protest starts. And then it also gives everyone legal reason right away. As soon as somebody shows a gun, you take away that gun. And uh, that's what we do in our school system. That's what we do in our community centers. We need to be able to do that on public property. That's what we need. Um, last question, the Albuquerque Museum Board of Trustees voted last week um, they, they asked you to take the Onyate statue down. They knew it was controversial from day one um, and they were afraid that it would be damaged. Why did you wait? So in Albuquerque, we have laws and uh, there is a, a federal uh, gift act law for public art that says that public art cannot be removed without the artist's permission. And so we, uh, right after we got that letter said, let's reach out to the artist. And we wanted to have uh, truth and reconciliation dialogue from both parties about this and come up with a resolution, which, which may or may not have been removing the statue, but to have the community decide what to do because of the deep history of this. And that's what we announced on Saturday. And that's what, you know, I think given all the trauma and the colonial scars that are so fresh in our community, there's still, we still have to do that. Tearing down the statue doesn't change those wounds and the change for uh, the need for dialogue. So but uh, Mr. what Mayor, happened given, is- uh, the, Given the, that there's the, a man in the hospital with physical wounds right now, was yeah. that a mistake? Well, I think we acted as soon as we could. Obviously, if I knew that that would have prevented anything, we would have tried to do it sooner. But the artist gave us permission and then we took it down. And it's something that uh, absolutely, uh, anything I could have done to prevent that shooting, I wish I could have done. And, you know, to be honest, in this job, in these times, there are um, 
there are challenges every day and there's things I would have done differently every day. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. All right, we're back at the line now, and we've all just watched Gwyneth's interview with the mayor. You know, a couple of weeks ago, she mentioned, I spoke with him as well, and he said he expected more incidents like the one outside of Jackson Wink where armed counter-protesters showed up. You might recall that. So, Tom, I want to ask you right now, your sense overall of what you just heard and how the mayor's handling this situation. Tough enough? Not tough enough? Is he, is he thinking ahead clearly enough? What was your sense of it? Well, you know, he's he's the mayor, so he gets to make the decisions. There were two things that really jumped out at my uh, in my mind. Uh, one was seeking permission of the artist uh, as a reason to not take the statue down. Uh, that raised a huge question mark with me as far as you know, you you know, assigning a decision to committee and then assigning it, you know, a decision like this to the artist uh, versus what we see in Santa Fe with uh, Mayor Alan Weber just making the command decision. I don't think there was any consideration with regards to, you know, how things were funded or, you know, how the artist felt or anything like that. So I, I thought that that was really interesting. The second was, uh, and, and he came back on this, is when he talked about changing freedom of speech and changing the right to bear arms. Um, at first, that hit me really kind of strangely, but he came back later on and he provided some needed clarification as far as really, um, really applying the same rules to protests that we see in school zones and you know churches and things of that nature, so I thought that you know that particular approach was was good, but clearly those decisions are made up in Santa Fe. Yeah, hey Crystal, the idea that uh, he, the mayor put out there that this idea of over policing that we've been stuck in for the last bit of time as a reason to pull back and really kind of go the other way on this. How did that strike you? Because I, I something about that really didn't quite ring for me. I'm curious what you thought of that. I was gonna say, did you see my reaction? And I cringed a little bit. Right. Um, I, and the reason why I, I um, reacted in a way where over-policing, I don't think was the right word is, right. Um, we had a crime problem. Did we forget about that in Albuquerque where, you know, we had to call in city councilors to literally walk our neighborhoods to see broken glass in our driveways. And, and we also had to ask why um, at the same time, you know, there was a, a shortage of, of cops. The definition of over policing in his eyes, I think is a, a different definition in mine. And um, I, I will heavily criticize the community action organization. There, there's no doubt in my mind, um, and, and I forgive me for forgetting the name of the new department, but um, uh, even though I might not remember the name, I know that I'm not terribly a fan of it. The, the reason why I'm not is because um, it, it absolutely cuts out public-private partnerships out of nonprofits that do a lot of these services already. Uh, and when they said that they're going to be redistributing millions of dollars to um, internally to create this department, they're going to get that money specifically from nonprofit budgets. Mm -hmm. And they're not addressing the core problem, which is the violence of these individuals with mental health, um, with, um, with uh, mental health issues, um, addiction, et cetera, homelessness, it starts within their families. Mm -hmm. So they're putting band-aids on the branches of the root of the problem. And uh, I, I'm very worried that the department will not actually execute this. And, I, and I'm worried, you know, I'm worried about um, the nonprofit that I'm serving on very heavily, Domestic Violence Resource Center. I'm afraid for SANE, the sexual assault nurses that might um, lose a, a number of calls, which they're funded by CYF, CYFD and, and APD. Mm -hmm. they're, uh, they're, uh, they're gonna lose a lot of funding because of projects like this. And, and, and I understand that the intent is there. But again, hey, I think- uh, Crystal, if I can get a favor, let me get Sophie in here real quick. Sure, 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 yeah. I, so if I got a question again, again, this yeah. clearly the mayor's talking about the use of force in, in, in the, the gremlins in, the back, in his background. And my question is, are we relying, is the mayor relying too much on this idea? Has he swallowed the APD line that use of force was such a problem, we now have to go completely the other way now? Is, is there something lost in the middle in your view? Uh, I, th I think it's a work in progress. And so I think I have to sort of reserve judgment on some of the elements of it. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I do think, frankly, that the community safety program um, 
is a, a response to some very direct feedback that the mayor's office um, has received both from the community and from police officers where we have seen over time um, and I mean, I think we could frankly date this back to the Reagan administration in this country, but we've seen over time that more and more we rely on police officers to be everything. Um, it's, it, it always, I sort of both laugh and cringe every time somebody calls 911 because their Domino's pizza hasn't arrived on time, but people really are viewing the police as a, a panacea for everything. And at the same time, we have members of the community who are saying, I would never call 911. I would never call the police. Because what I see is my neighbor, my family member, we just had this situation happen here in the greater Albuquerque community. Um, I can't trust that in this situation, which requires more nuance, more training, et cetera, that if you send APD in, that, that my family member, my neighbor won't be killed. Um, and so I, I think that context of, um, concern about how policing has been used um, and the burdens that have been placed on police officers and therefore also um, the lack of resources in some other areas where it's just more appropriate for instance for social workers to deal with social work level of problems than it is for APD officers to deal right. with them. And I understand that there is a you know that the police sometimes have a have a power trip there's no doubt about that but I, I don't understand why an entire department is being created when we already have partnerships within APD that's actually working. Like the crisis intervention team, that's a separate department. They refer calls to domestic violence advocates. They'll refer to CYFD. They don't just leave people hanging. And so that's why I, I understand that the police do have um, an abuse of power to a certain degree. Um, but that means proper- I call it an abuse of power. I think they just have way too much on their plate and the proposal from the mayor, uh, while it's still needs to be extremely vetted out and uh, reporters have pointed that out. It's still a very good idea and something that kind of formalizes that process of, of that art of law enforcement. We'll have to leave that there. There will be so much more to talk about in the coming weeks, certainly. No doubt part of that's going to be the new program the mayor talked about, the creation of the new safe community safety department he talked about with Gwyneth. Lots of implications there. Who's going who's gonna to pay for it? Where's the money going to come from? And what are the goals? We'll see that how that all plays out. Be sure to check it out on NewMexicoInFocus.org. When we set up that interview with Mayor Keller, it was with the intent of talking about his plan to create a new department in the city of Albuquerque, for a department for community safety. This is building on a lot of the police reform efforts that you're hearing communities talk about today. This would be bringing in, in part, be bringing in specialists, mental health specialists, behavioral health specialists on particular calls so that it's not police responding to just every 911 call out there, getting people who are really equipped to help folks in need and in tough situations. Uh, he did stick around, thankfully, to talk to us a little bit about that after our interview on the protest on Monday night. So here again is Gwyneth Dolan and that conversation with Mayor Keller about his community safety department plans. Mayor, let's talk for a minute about it, about your proposed new Department of Community Safety. Can you give me an example off the top of your head of a, a situation in which this, um, this department would come into play and how things would be handled differently? You know, there are several that we've been working on over the past few years, and that's why this idea for us really came to light, because what we've been seeing is like we took down and out calls. So, you know, these are folks, whether for inebriation or um, or addiction. I mean, you know, these are the folks passed out on the street. And, and I, I think we all are familiar with this scene. So what happens is people call 911 and, you know, three police officers show up. Uh, we've changed that to be a paramedic and a social worker. And that's taken 15,000 calls out of our system. And I think most importantly, uh, it's helped that person more. Uh, and also it's freed up those three, three officers to take other calls. So that's one example, but we see this also in even our needles program. When we, we still have needles and parks challenges, we used to send a bunch of officers to pick up needles. Uh, now we send a firefighter team or solid waste to go do that. 
And we also try and train neighborhoods in a way that they can do it safely. And then we'll pick up the bag of needles that they've picked up. So, um, and, and these are all ways to just, uh, you know, reflect the fact that in many communities, uh, seeing a police car or a bunch of police in their neighborhood, uh, especially for communities of color, that is that has a lot of historical trauma inside it. And so I think this is also an example where some of us, you know, of my own background and, and privilege, we see a police car down the street, that's a good thing. For a lot of communities, it's not. And so this is trying to also understand this concept of over-policing and when police should actually do core police work versus when we should get an expert to actually help people with their challenges. Picking up needles is a really good example of, of something that a civilian can do. Um, what about cases like domestic violence where maybe it's a lot more difficult to figure out, is this a situation of immediate danger where we do need a cop or is this a situation that can be diffused by a social worker? So that is a very good example. And this is one where uh, we wanna have, just like we do with fire, there's a spectrum. So obviously if there's, if it's a violent call or if there's a weapon in the house that we know about, you know, an officer has to go. Uh, and that's how we do it with fire right now. So like if a firefighter shows up, there's not always an officer on purpose, uh, but sometimes there is. So that's how we would handle it. But I think to give an example, you know, we had one where, um, head lice, which sounds, you know, very minor. Uh, in other words, a child had head lice and so they call 911 and so police officers show up. Well, let's think about that. Number one, it could just be head lice. Cause like, I mean, I have kids, it happens. Uh, but that also can be an indication of improper conditions at the home of uh, certain neglect situations. So that's one where we would want a social worker to show up and also do a little bit of a diagnosis in terms of what's happening at home. And so this is again, a good example where that civilian response, that unarmed response can be, be very powerful and, and also maybe address and discover and help areas of domestic violence or child abuse and neglect. So it's gonna cost money, you know, a new department and you're talking about moving millions of dollars around. Some of this money, I mean, you know, public safety is the biggest part of the city budget. Some of this money is undoubtedly gonna have to come from APD. Um, how will the department not suffer if, if you take money from it? Well, what we're doing is we are looking at things like violence intervention and our diversion programs. And so those right now are inside APD and they still need to work with APD. But these are some programs that we can move out that don't affect core police work. And there's also like our homeless outreach team is in APD, for example. Uh, that's one of the ones we want to move out as well. That's the COAST team. So we think actually there's lots of programs that we can move out and still coordinate, but they can be out from under that sort of, uh, you know, badge and sworn officer bureaucracy. And for us, we think we can move uh, at least $10 million worth of programs into this department from five or six other departments, including some from fire, family and community services, even a lot from our municipal security. So these are the folks who give parking tickets and check abandoned cars. Uh, these are all the things we're gonna group together. And hopefully that's gonna take some things off officers' plates because uh, we really know we have a high violent crime pro problem and we also have a huge officer shortage. We wanna invest in continuing to fix those challenges over on the APD side. Um, you know, some of the, some of the, as you've mentioned, some of the things that this new department would be doing are things that the city has already changed and has already been doing. How long have you been planning this new department? Is this, uh, how long did it take you to pull it together? So for us, the amazing thing is we had been working on programs to, you know, kind of civilianize response uh, in, and, and have a, an unarmed professional show up at your door for the last couple of years. The interesting thing is we actually learned a lot from what's going on around our country and even locally from a lot of our um, uh, members, even of the African-American community. We talked to them about the difference between racism and anti-blackness and how that's very different in New Mexico. And also how that's been different with interactions with our police department, which basically reflects the population of the city. But of course, uh, like the city has a very small proportion of African-Americans. And so what we learned from them is, you know, maybe we should actually just restructure this whole process and we should institutionalize the change rather than having task force after pilot project after white paper. And so that was very empowering for us uh, to make this move. 
Well, thank you for taking the extra time to talk to us about the new department. Yes, thank you. As we mentioned at the top of the show, it was the start of the special session this week for the New Mexico legislature, a session unlike any other. You got a combination of lawmakers there in person, lawmakers weighing in via phone, via Zoom. They're all doing their best to maintain social distancing and best practices in COVID-19 while also dealing with the urgent business of dealing with the budget uh, and the budget deficit that the state is facing. In addition, they're also looking at some public safety uh, reforms, some criminal justice reforms, police reform measures, um, as well as some election reform measures as we look ahead to the general election in November and how to handle COVID-19, which will no doubt still be around then, may even have some flare-ups as it gets a little colder. So lawmakers, a lot on their plate, not a lot of time to deal with it. And, of course, they started the special session on Thursday at noon, so that was right after we taped the show this week. But the line panelists weigh in about the plans um, and just how lawmakers are going to navigate so much important legislation in such a short period of time. Here again is the line. We sat down to our various desks to record the line Thursday. Most political eyes were trained on the Capitol, certainly, as lawmakers return to Santa Fe to plug a $2 billion hole in the budget. That starts July 1st. But wait, as they say, there's more. The governor delivered a call just hours before the session's opening gavel. It also includes four key areas of police reform, changes to the election code, tax relief, and changes to some licensing issues for alcohol and notary publics. Now, Sophie, is that too much or is this the moment to get at things like that? Well, you know, looking at the list, uh, in particular, the, the items related to COVID-19, um, they seem pressing to me. Uh, and it's, this is the only bite she's got at this apple, right? So the governor. So mm-hmm. do it or don't do it. But I don't think that many of these things really cannot wait, especially the election issues, um, the sending absentee ballots without having to have them requested first. We can't predict today where we will be in November. The thought of the legislature coming back a second time prior to November in order to get that taken care of, especially since we had a really recent ruling from the Supreme Court that laid the groundwork for for why it had to happen through the legislature. So I I think that one in particular, some of the other ones, if not now, I don't think Mm -hmm. they can wait until next year. And I'm not sure that anybody, you know, four weeks ago, even though we were still in the, we were in the middle of the pandemic, expected that we would be moving so quickly on police reform. But that issue has overtaken the state and has overtaken um, the the news and and our thoughts and our lives. Um, Failing to take advantage of that opportunity also feels like it would be a missed opportunity. Mm -hmm. Hey, Tom, on Sophie's note there, I can't help but think about John Arthur Smith's quote the other day saying he wants to get in and out of this thing in one day, that he can can do this in one day. (laughs) Possible? I mean, what, what are we thinking here? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's possible if the only thing you're talking about is how do you plug a $2 billion deficit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, clearly, you know, the House and the governor have other plans in mind for John Arthur and the members of the New Mexico Senate. Um, right. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's not a one day in and out. It's probably three days. Uh, and, you know, any I would not anticipate much of the governor's agenda uh, getting through the Senate. Uh, just because of uh, the way politics are. Uh, but you're not saying that they're worthy or not worthy. You know, I, I personally would like to see a lot of the items related to COVID specifically, um, you know, changing some of the laws with regards to, um, you know, restaurants and, you know, uh, delivery options, things of that nature, as far as businesses that could be restricted. I also like to see, you know, some use of the severance tax uh, fund uh, uh, to, you know, help municipalities uh, deal with decreased gross receipts tax revenues. So there are a lot of specific things that I think are worthwhile that are larger than the $2 billion budget plug. But but nonetheless, you know, give them a chance to make law, they'll make law. Right. Hey, Crystal Sierra, as we know, the Capitol is closed to the public and lobbyists and such. Uh, Some of the meetings are taking place online. Certainly Republicans tried to you know, Clint Pirtle's deal went down to defeat three to two in the Supreme Court to allow the legislature to meet with only virtual participation. What's your sense of how this virtual approach is going to work? Are, are, is the public going to get served here? 
or what's what's the danger point as you look at this? Sure. Um, you know, myself and um, another line panelist, Dee Dee Feldman, you know, mm -hmm. the both of us are on the board for the New Mexico Foundation for Open Government and upholding open meetings is huge. And, you know, the what the Supreme Court said is, you know, the words um, of the Open Meetings Act to say they, the government entity must allow reasonable public access. Mm -hmm. And if you, you know, if we were to dumb that down, you know, internet access should be everywhere. But as Tom knows from working with Comcast, internet access is not always everywhere in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, I, I, um, I think transparency is absolutely important at this time. You know, there's a condition that we haven't even thought of, which is um, if there's any bills that need to be made public and there's amendments, you know, will will the public at least get 48 to 72 hours to see the um, to see it? Because we usually get 30 or 60 days during That's a session. A That's a very mm -hmm. good point. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, ADA compliance in terms of access to Internet. We talked about that. Um, you know, and, and here's here's the thing where it's like, OK, let's take the token millennial and, and ask her, what does she think about the use of technology with government? And sometimes, you know, some of the Senate uh, senators and and uh, and, and uh, members of the House can't even use their cell phone to send a text message or a tweet. So, of course, this is really um, this is going to be a major challenge. And, and we bet we hope best for technology to really shine um, some um, uh, transparency and sunshine in, into our government. But the budget process is not going to be um, as transparent as it needs to be. The state Supreme Court uh, even said that they they really don't want to interfere with the government governmental decision making and their ability to act. Mm -hmm. um, I think that before you even, um, you know, the, the court in this particular situation with this particular special session, um, all of us in business, all of us in the community, individuals have had to learn how to pivot and use technology to, to continue our livelihood. Now mm -hmm. the government has to do the same thing to not only continue livelihood, but to make sure that the public has access to the, to, um, to government period. That's a good point. Hey, Sophie, you know, the idea that, you know, we're hearing a lot of comprehensive stuff being put on the, on the table here. And I just got to come back to this time issue. You know, the idea that we can get to all of these things in a quality manner, have a quality discussion, have the public feel like they understand what the issues are before a vote comes up. There's you, no way. There's it, no it, way. Yeah. Within the time frame that they're discussing, there's no, there's no way. I mm -hmm. mean, um, I sort of, when you were talking about John Arthur Smith saying it was going to be a one day session, I thought, well, because all he wants to do is say, I'm done. He's out, right? He's right. done. Um, one of the things, just to pick up on what Christelle was saying, Please. one of the things that I hope we come out of from this tough moment where I think there won't be enough access, there won't be enough discussion, all of those things are going to be kind of pushed aside because of the pandemic and because of the need for apparent need for expediency. Um, I know, for instance, that New Mexico Fog has been, for many years, was pushing for additional access through the internet for streaming, et cetera, et cetera. We're finally there. And then what I would like to see is that we take another big step forward in terms of digital access for people who are not able to be there in person, as we have seen in our businesses, in our courts, and in other arenas. You know, Tom, the committee hearings the other day, we streamed uh, here at New Mexico in focus. And just like you would expect, things dropped. Um, good amounts of the committee hearing dropped. It, it just, it's, you know, it, it seems to me there's an, if you want to start trouble with this situation, there's going to be plenty of openings here. Because if any given legislator decides they don't want to play along with this, you're going to have a real mess on your hands. I, it seems to me committee leadership has a real discipline issue on their hands here. What's your sense of that? Oh, yeah. Committee leadership does, uh, you know, Senate leadership, House leadership. Uh, but all of the legislators have an increased responsibility to really increase their level of transparency and accountability. Because when you're off camera, when you're off microphone, you can have conversations that will never be picked up uh, and shared with the general public. So that's in, is, in essence, a very real concern. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I, I want to add just really, really briefly that if we're questioning transparency, how truly do we trust our government to make the best decisions possible for our, our communities? And mm -hmm. that's one thing that I think people need to take into consideration at this time. So, well, and according to our perception survey, the trust of government is for state and federal uh, is down around 20 and 30 percent. So not much. No. Well, Tom, I'm going to stay with you on that. I just anticipated another question. 
you sort of touched on this just a little bit earlier, but the ramifications for November, we are in an election season <laughs> and how these men and women comport themselves during this special seems to me has huge ramifications for voting in November. Oh, absolutely. There are both sides that are really taking a lot of notes, recording a lot of video footage. Uh, you know, it's it, it, a lot of this, I think, is I would like to think is for the good of the good as far as good, good of the state. But unfortunately, a lot of this is really going to be twisted to say, here's all the things I tried to get done, but couldn't because of the legislature. Yeah, I hear um, that loud and clear. Absolutely. Hey, guys, thanks to the panel for rolling with all the changing news this week. There was a lot. There's no doubt. Journalism in a time of COVID-19 is not an easy proposition. I know we have felt that here at the show. We, for really the last two and a half months, have been doing the show in its entirety via Zoom, uh, remote web conferencing, recording those interviews and uh, doing what we can to clean them up and get them to you because information is so key during a time of COVID-19 and everything else the state and this country are dealing with. Someone who knows all too well about the challenges of doing journalism in a time of a pandemic is the Albuquerque Journal's photojournalist, Roberto Rosales. And in keeping with our uh, pattern over the weeks of checking in with journalists, uh, we had Laura Pascas, our correspondent, catch up with Roberto to find out about his work during COVID-19, as well as he's covered all kinds of protests, not just the Black Lives Matter protests, but protests going back to Donald Trump uh, and his campaign in 2016. Roberto's really seen it all, so we're thrilled to catch up with him. First time we've checked in with a uh, photojournalist since COVID-19 outbreak, but really Roberto's pictures, he's a phenomenal uh, professional and uh, storyteller as well. His images are iconic, really help to uh, help us all understand the full scope of the impacts of the pandemic, especially. And he spent a lot of time on the Navajo Nation, which was an increased challenge because of the outbreak they had there. They were under mandatory shutdowns, curfews. Uh, it's just been a real challenge. Roberto's work has been excellent, and we were really happy to sit down with him for a few minutes. So much stuff in the show this week, we didn't have time for all of it, so we did uh, put it up on our Facebook page and our YouTube page, the rest of our interview with him, but want to share that with you here as well. Here's correspondent Laura Pascas. COVID-19 continue, continues to define the bounds of life for many of us. This week, correspondent Laura Pascas speaks with photojournalist Roberto Rosales of the Albuquerque Journal. He's been there a long time. Mr. Rosales has been documenting the impact of coronavirus and the communities it's hit across New Mexico. Roberto, you've been photographing all over New Mexico, including Gallup and the Navajo Nation. I'm curious, what do you wish that people better understood about the impacts that COVID-19 is having on communities and families all across the state? Um, I think we need to understand that this is, we have to be a little more sympathetic. Uh, I don't think they're getting that emotional support that uh, they deserve. You know, at first, a lot of folks just wanted to stay away because they felt like, oh, I know they don't want to welcome outsiders and all of that. And that's not the case. They're, they just want to be heard and they want to, they want to show that this is, so important for future generations. And so if you and I don't go to Gallup or the Rex, um, we're, we're helping in, but at the same time, we need to let that community know they have our full support. And I don't think we've done a great job in showing that. As you've been shooting around the state, whose stories have really stuck with you after you've come home? I. Remember this uh, young lady, her name is Tammy, um, who I met in a supermarket in Gallup. When the COVID-19 pandemic was just starting, I met her in the parking lot as she brought her entire family to shop for groceries. And we had a, a very casual conversation. Little did I know, two weeks later, um, half the people in that car that she was traveling with would be infected with corona. Now, in another two weeks, her aunt died. And her brother and herself came down with coronavirus. So 
they were quarantined in one of the local hotels. And while doing another story, I managed to talk to her while she was in quarantine. She told me how difficult this had been. Um, it was devastating. And her story really stuck with me. And I, I want to do a, a story after all this is over and how everybody's coping with it. Um, she's one of the people that I cannot forget throughout the many stories that I've done on the Navajo Restoration. So switching gears a little bit, you have covered protests for years from the James Boyd, after the James Boyd shooting a few years ago to the Black Lives Matter protests that are happening right now. What do you see different about what's happening today out on the streets? I think uh, that there's more unity where in the past it was, uh, it, it was still a, a issue that affected a lot of folks here in New Mexico, but I think it's, it's a wave that's sweeping across the country and it's time for uh, everyone to get on board. And that's the, the attitude that I'm seeing. This is our time. We're going to get on this wave. And so the movement, the ideology is a lot stronger now. They feel like they have more support. Whereas in the past with the uh, James Boyd situation, it was more of an isolated issue here in Albuquerque or in the Southwest, you know, with APD and their use of force or unnecessary force, if you will, uh, five, six years ago. So now it, it, it really, people feel like this movement, um, they can be a part of, it will include more folks. So as a photojournalist, you do not have the luxury of doing your work by Zoom and staying home. And I'm really curious, Roberto, how are you staying safe um, over the past three months and looking ahead also? Well, you know, when this pandemic started, everybody was very apprehensive because we were still getting data on how this virus was transmitted. So in the beginning, we would keep our distance, even beyond six feet. You know, everybody was skeptical as to really what, how do you contract it? And then we slowly and slowly started moving in closer and closer and keeping our distance to about six feet, using different lenses, more zoom lenses that really came handy when you couldn't get that close. Um, but as far as my own protection, wearing N95 masks all the time, gloves, and goggles. Like I actually bought some safety goggles. However, um, I will not enter somebody's home uh, in order to make like your portrait and so forth, unless they have recovered. Um, I think all those stories that I've done related to Corona have been either outside or in an environment where it was uh, decontaminated or uh, it was cleaned up. So I didn't put myself at risk, and I also didn't want to put others at risk. It's been rough, and I think going forward, you have to keep that uh, mentality going for your own protection. Uh, we can sort of get lazy, if you will, and forget to wear a mask, forget to wear gloves, but you've got to think of the people you're coming. They come first. Well, Roberto, you are a treasure, and we are so lucky in New Mexico to have you. Thank you for all your work, and please stay safe out there. Thank you so much, Laura. I appreciate it. Thank you for all the work you do for our state. I really appreciate that. Hi, Roberto. Thanks for joining us. Um, working for the Albuquerque Journal as a photojournalist over, um, I'm not sure how many years it's been now, but like you shoot everything. Lobo basketball games, protests, um, you've shot all along the border. Um, you are everywhere. Crime scenes, um, you know, we're just accustomed to seeing your photos as you are everywhere in the state. And obviously you're not at sports games right now as that has um, changed. But I'm really curious as someone who is just still out and about everywhere, I'm curious how you see the changes that have happened, particularly in Albuquerque, like in how we occupy spaces and how we relate to one another and how we interact with one another. Like, what are the big changes that you've been seeing? I, I don't see 
Um, there used to be this spontaneity, I guess, you know, throughout Albuquerque, you can go anywhere and like find whatever, uh, any particular event happening. And today everything has to be so measured that uh, I know where to go to be with friends or around people, you know, without putting myself at risk. Um, yeah, there doesn't seem to be uh, spontaneity, like just having like a like a sense of place. You know, Albuquerque right now feels like so clinical, if you will. Like everything, it, it's not what what we used to. And I want to see more of that uh, element that that makes the Southwest what it is, especially in New Mexico. Uh, yeah, I feel like we're trapped. You know, like. Uh, we're in this box and it's slowly breaking away and we're trying to get out and I I don't see uh, a lot of the elements that made photojournalism uh, what it was in the past where a lot of things were almost guaranteed that you could find. Today you have to work twice as hard to photograph to find subjects that are meaningful to the community. How do you tell stories without a template. Right now we have somewhat of a template going because of Corona. Um, and I want to break out of that again, where I can travel anywhere without restriction and let people do what they normally would be doing. It's a really difficult time. And it's a very good question you asked because a lot of people are finding themselves uh, in the same boat. How do I tell stories? around Corona? How do I begin to tell stories in a way that hasn't been done for the past three months? That is so difficult to do right now. And until we have no parameters around this virus, I don't see us getting back to that norm. So it could be next year. Lack of sports, obviously, impacts everyone. I mean, it's just not fun out there. You know, and that's just something that I really miss about Albuquerque. There's no sports, there's no lower basketball, lower football. And we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, if there's a relapse, uh, I hate to speculate, but we could not see sports until next year. So, but yeah, that's a good question. It's really, really difficult to uh, get back to those moments that made Albuquerque what it is, those scenes. Well, thank you for the stories that you are telling for the rest of us. And um, thanks for joining us on New Mexico in Focus. Thank you, Laura. I appreciate that. want to end the show this week by changing gears a little bit uh, with correspondent Russell Contreras. He had the opportunity to um, have a conversation with Mark Kennedy Shriver. He is with the Save the Children Action Network. Uh, and they do a lot of research and studies on child well-being. And they say they've actually done the first study that goes county by county to look at things like poverty and food insecurity and education and early childhood development. Their new report is out. Unfortunately, the news is not great for New Mexico. And the timing is not great either as the legislature is looking to have to make some difficult cuts uh, they're going to try to hold education as harmless as possible, they say, but no doubt everyone's going to feel the crunch with the budget shortfall the state is dealing with. So to kind of help everyone understand those issues a little better, especially in light of the Yazzie Martinez lawsuit, which the state has been really trying to turn the tide of uh, education and equality of education for all New Mexico children um, it is an even increased challenge, but this gives you a good background around those issues and why they're important. And we want to uh, toss ahead a little bit to either next week or the week after when we will follow up this conversation by sitting down with the new uh, secretary for the Early Childhood Development Department for the state. It's a new department to begin with, and she is the first secretary. That's Ellen Goginski. Russ will be doing that interview as well, so we encourage you to look out for that. Also want to remind everybody to follow the Your NM Government Facebook page and podcast that we're doing in partnership with KUNM Radio. 
and the Santa Fe Reporter. They are covering the Black Lives Matter movement right now, as well as COVID-19, especially this week, the special session, as we try to keep you as informed as possible. Just a ton going on. We appreciate how hard everyone works to stay informed. We'd love to hear from you. Reach out to us on social media, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. You can email us at NewMexicoInFocus at NMPBS.org. That's NewMexicoPBS.org, NMPBS. And we appreciate you listening. We want everybody to stay safe and have a great weekend. We'll see you again next week. If kids not graduating from high school in America today, uh, they're going to struggle in the job market. Um, They need at least that high school degree to pursue maybe post-secondary education or to get a skill. Uh, But it's all based on literacy and math. And if we don't invest in those crucial uh, first few years of life, kids enter kindergarten so far behind, uh, we're going to spend millions and billions of dollars trying to remediate them. In many cases, it doesn't work.